Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very special edition, the legislative updates with our very own Jane Johnson. Jane, I'm so happy when we have these episodes surface to get to connect with you, to talk about what's going on. We're recording this on March 14th. The session was supposed to end on March 11th, but you're going to catch us up to speed on what we need to know this legislative session 2022. Talk to us, Jane. Well, it, the session, like you said, is almost over. They're going to meet in about an hour at noon on Monday the 14th to vote on the budget. They spent a lot of time on Thursday and Friday of last week debating the budget. So we think it's going to be a pretty short session for both the House and the Senate. I think the big question will be, will the budget be approved unanimously in both chambers or will there be dissent? My money says unanimous because it's such a huge budget. It's $112.1 billion. Last year's wow. budget was $106 billion, which was a record at the time. So this is uh -huh. the largest budget in state history, and there's something in there for everyone. So to vote against it for most members would be to vote against funding that they were able to get for their constituents. So there are things to like and not like, but overall, I think there's there's satisfaction that a lot of critical programs were got additional funding. So um, maybe go in on what we were advocating for in terms of funding and how that's looking in the budget right now. The stills were kind of comeback kids. We started out the session with a $900,000 appropriations request, which was sponsored in the House and the Senate with two different bills. We were promised that our House, in the House Higher Education Committee, our issue would get picked up in the budget that they sent up and it didn't get picked up. And we had been relying on the House, so we hadn't worked the Senate that hard. So we started off not being in either budget. The Senate then amended us in at $250,000, which is considered just a placeholder. So we were very nervous. The House chair, Representative Renee Placencia, told us that it was a clerical error, that he had been told the money was in. And then when the budget got printed, it, we weren't in there. So he promised to come back during the conference, budget conferences and, restore, and put the money in at 900,000. This is what we asked for last year, but we only got half or 450,000. So going into conference, we were in on the Senate side at 250 and zero on the House side. But during the conference process, as promised, Representative Ray Placencia put us in at 900,000. The Senate still had us at 250,000, but then when they came together to negotiate the differences between the two conference proposals, um, the Senate bumped us up to 900,000. So that is the funding that for SILs that got included in the final budget that will be voted on today. So we are thrilled, but it was it was a nail biter. <laughs> wow, come back kid, that's the right way to do it. So this $900,000, is for adult transitions, whether it's to get people out of institutionalized care or prevent them from going into it. That could look like a lot of different things in terms of prevention. Could be home modifications, could be assistive technologies, could be providing any kind of uh, daily activity that they would need to be able to maintain their community living. And, and we all know uh, from talking on the show how important it is for people with disabilities to remain in the community or to be transitioned back into the community so that you know they can live the independent life. 
And uh, so we're very excited about this. And wow, yeah, what a roller coaster ride. We were in, we were out, we were kind of in. And it reminds me of like uh, this winter. It seems like it's uh, the, the weather, the flowers have been, <laughs> they've been out, they've been in, they've been out. And all of a sudden, like it's like we were talking earlier, it was like 29 degrees over the weekend. So now they're out and, uh, you know, like a legislative session, uh, pretty much a roller coaster ride. So. Right. Um, and it's a great way to, to, I mean, it's important. It's an important lesson to take away is that it's never over till it's over. Never give up advocating. Sometimes messages that you believe have been communicated well, aren't communicated well. Don't underestimate the importance of staff. So in this case, the member thought it was done, but the staff person dropped the ball. So when you're advocating, make sure that you talk to the member, but also talk to their staff person because you, with most organizations, the staff do the bulk of the work. Uh -huh. The members are the, the spokespersons. So in, in our case, we should have followed up with the staff as well. But you know, the, the member looked us straight in the eyes and said, don't worry, we got you. And then he was mortified when it didn't happen. But thankfully, the conference process is iterative because they, there's opportunities to go back and forth and negotiate. But yeah, there's there's a lot to be learned in in that process about how important it is to touch all of the different people who have... Um, who have a say in the process. That was almost a million dollar clerical error, yes. <laughs> right? You said it was a clerical error. So yeah, unintentional, I'm sure. And yeah, you know, we're all humans and things happen, but a really good lesson you're gleaming here is, um, yeah, it's one thing to get the approval and the nod of the state's legislature, but you're right. It's the, the, the staff that are gonna be doing the bulk of the work. So circling around with them and connecting with them and communication, 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 is always uh, one of those lessons learned. Any other lessons learned? Well, and yeah. I did stop by and meet with the house member and give him a plaque of appreciation that was from last year. But so, and then yeah. I did the same thing on the Senate side. So that didn't hurt either to no. recognize the, the, the members and um, give them something, you know, a, a token of appreciation, let them know that all of the seals appreciate them. So um, stroking the people that you're asking yeah, for um, contributions yeah. from too is, is, is important, but uh, huge. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. Anything else in the budget that's worth noting that you're aware of or anything like that, that uh, could be impactful for folks that uh, are in the disability world? Well, you know, a big issue in the disability world, even though it's only a, a segment of the disability world, but it gets most of the attention is the APD home and community-based waiver because there are so many parent advocates that whose uh, children or adult children are on that waiver, they, it gets a lot of airspace downtown. And so $56.9 million was allocated to the APD waiver to take a thousand people off the waiting list. So that's exciting because again, when people can get onto a Medicaid home and community-based waiver, that means that they can be served in the community as opposed to in an institution. So um, that was a that was very positive. They also allocated $8.5 million for dental services for people with developmental disabilities. Awesome. And that's really important because dental services can be really hard to come by. Um, money won't always buy the solution though, because the bigger problem is that most dentists don't take Medicaid and don't want to serve yeah. people in the Medicaid programs. And I have a quote for today that kind of addresses this. So 8.5 million will go a long way to take the money to serve people with developmental disabilities. Some people with developmental disabilities, it's really complicated to get dental services because um, if there's any spasticity or involuntary mo movements, 
a lot of times they have to be restrained in a chair or medicated to get dental services because they can't, it's hard for them to sit still. Or if there's yeah. a cognitive disability, they don't understand what's happening and they can push and right. fight back and make it dangerous. You know, if someone has a drill in their hand and the person getting the filling is pushing against the drill, that could be really catastrophic. So um, sure. there's only a few specialized dentists that can provide that care. And Tony, I know in your region, wow. Takachali is a yeah. developmental services institution and they have a specialized dental program that a lot of people who don't live at Takachali will come to, to get that specialized treatment because they have special chairs that can uh, accommodate someone with a disability. So wow, there's a lot more to the, to the issue than just dental services that like the right? way most people yeah. would think of them. Imagine it. Yeah, exactly. So access and then, you know, having the accommodations needed is a huge component. And then having the doctors who will take that Medicaid rate for that really difficult, sure. um, sometimes difficult yeah. to deliver service. There's $5 million yeah, yeah. for the hearing aids in the budget. And that okay. is up from, there was about $3 million um, originally allocated for to create a program in the Department of Health. And that, that, allocation was there alongside two bills in the House and the Senate that passed unanimously in every committee to create a mandate for health insurance companies to cover hearing aids and, and assistive devices for kids with hearing impairments. The bills passed, but the Senate never voted on the final bill. And they decided instead of going with legislation, um, actually on the House side, the House Speaker said that he doesn't believe in insurance mandates because it raises the cost of insurance for everyone. So he didn't let that bill pass in his chamber, but instead they allocated funding in the Department of Health to create a program where all kids who don't have, a, uh, aren't covered by Medicaid and whose parents earn up to 400% of the federal po poverty level can receive hearing aids and hearing devices, cochlear implants and that sort of thing through the Department of Health. Okay unclear how the program will work because it's a centralized program out of Tallahassee. So it's not, I'm not sure uh, how the mechanics yeah. of it will work. But the good news is that because of very effective testimony by some parents and adults who had early diagnosed hearing impairments, they testified in committees about how important it was for them to be able to hear so that they could learn and finish school and become employed. That was, that's a really cool thing that was done. But again, it, the devil will be in the details in terms of how that will actually manifest itself at the local level for parents. Yeah. And that's a big one for the listeners aren't uh, aware of just like how important these assistive devices are for people with disabilities. And, you know, the idea that like there's a device that could really help someone out to hear in this case, and there, or it could be a device that helps somebody's mobility or somebody that's visually impaired to be able to, to read their mail or to go to work or school. And the only barrier between them and that the device is, is financial. And, and what a difference you know, these assistive devices have to make in the, the quality of life, the independent living in people's life, to be a contributing member of our society. I really you know, hope people can understand that the, these great innovations that are happening in technologies are just revolutionary to people's independent living that have disabilities. And the more that we can get the financial barriers out of the way, because often, unfortunately, like insurance or you know, even those that are, you know, are living in poverty and maybe underinsured or uh, uninsured, 
it's just for me, it's a big issue and it's starting to resonate more and more, especially as we get better and better technologies of how it just impactful this can be to the community of people who have disabilities and want to live independently. Right. And we, you know, can got to do something to get these devices into the, to the hands and, and own ownership of uh, people with disabilities. It's so true, Tony. And it's, it, and it's not just for hearing devices. There's, there's so much technology yeah. that is unaccessible to people because of the, of the cost. The lesson learned from this issue was the power of personal testimony. When you had moms stand at the podium with their children and talking about you know, having a child who was born unable to hear and what a difference it made to be able to have so that you know, they could learn how to say mom and they could learn how to, you know, they could go to school, they could participate. Um, and then to have one of the had a son who was born deaf and he is gainfully employed working. Um, he was actually working with the legislature this year and he was able to get up and, and provide testimony to the importance and the, the return on investment that in providing assistive technology to people so that they can earn their own living and, and stand, you know, live independently and not, you know, in the past people who were deaf, a lot of times their employment and their education options were very limited. So this kind of opens the door and removes the ceiling from their, their possibilities. Personal testimony, like hearing that specific story for what it does for a person's life to have this tech uh, right there is huge and beneficial for, for others that might not understand the impact that, you know, these technologies can have on, on people's lives. It's just, it is a game changer uh, for real. It reminds me too that I think uh, the Florida Assistive Alliance for Assistive Services and Technologies, otherwise known as FAST, they had some legislative efforts that was hoping to go towards getting assistive technologies into the hands of people. How did that fare? They had a great year. So there was a policy bill and an appropriations request. The appropriations request was about $385,000. And so that got approved. And their, the stated purpose was to increase funding for the regional demonstration centers so that more people can learn about assistive technology. And as you know, many of the SILs in Florida are regional demonstration centers under contract with FAST. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they fast to their credit allocated as much money as they had available to fund centers to try to have a statewide statewide reach mm-hmm. but the funds were limited and the sure. contracts you know it was a lot of ask for um for the funding that they had available so this will able this will allow them to increase the funding that they can provide to the local regional demonstration centers and then they had a cleanup bill as well as similar to the to the bill that FASL ran last year, updating statute, reducing the number of people on their, their board of directors or their council, and just aligning current law with federal law. Um, we find that a lot of times that, especially in areas of policy where there's not, um, people don't pay that much attention, like disability policies for things like FASL, for things like for FAST or other disability serving organizations. A lot of times the law can be completely outdated, but nobody cares because it's not really impacting anybody. Mm. So it's really important to put attention on that and to come back and to align law with what what the federal government has has done. You know, in the case of Filk and last year before we amended the law, it made it really difficult for Filk to operate because of the requirements in state law that were out of alignment with federal law. So kudos to FAST and Whitney Harris-Doyle for her work, she was a great advocate. She testified in committee. She met with, I think, every single member on the House and Senate committees that heard her bill. She pounded the pavement and did a fabulous job. So 
I was really exciting. It was exciting to watch that in process. That is really good to hear. And Whitney has been a, a, on the show before talking about what FAST does. And, you know, she came up through the Youth Leadership Forum, which we've talked about here uh, on the podcast, and that FASL and yourself are, are highly involved in each summer. And we'll talk more about that as we get closer to it. But certainly, I'd like to think that her formative development and becoming an advocate through the Youth Leadership Forum really helped her out in terms of uh, advocating for FAST and getting that funding for their regional distribution centers. We now have become one of them ourselves, among many other SILs, like you mentioned. And yeah, it's not a lot of money to do the, the needed services that are out there for people. And um, with more uh, of funding to come and do that, we're going to reach more people. And, right. and, and as uh, we, we were talking about earlier, it's so important that people have access to these technologies because like, the, for, the amount of return is just overwhelming in, in terms of what goes into it. And so I'm really excited to hear that. Kudos to Fast. Kudos to Whitney and, and going into it. Let me ask you this. And this is kind of out of left field. Uh, for you. But uh, each and every year, there's a lot of talk around the Sadowski funds, which you know, and, and maybe our listeners don't know, is um, funds that are intended to go towards affordable housing that you know counties and cities and, and whatnot can receive to help address the affordable housing issues that everyone in the, in the state is impacted by. It's a major issue. Uh, but often in many legislative sessions over the last uh, many years, uh, these funds are swept into other coffers that will go towards other things that aren't, are not affordable housing. Is there any indication on the state of these Sadowski funds for this round? Are they uh, held intact? Are they being swept? What's going on with those? Well, last year, they they passed a bill that put a ceiling on how much can go into the, uh, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. And I think the legislature was tired of being accused of sweeping um, <laughs> the funds. They wanted to be able to establish how much, because really, if if it was done the way the law was, was written before last year's bill, the, the amount of funds going into the Sadowski Fund would be unlimited. Because if you had a whole lot of, um, it's funded by something called documentary stamp taxes. Every time there's a cons there's construction um, and permits, that there's a documentary stamp tax, and that's the oh, those are all the documents that, that have to get filed for building and housing construction. So if you have a really boom building year, all that the, the funding in that for those documentary stamp taxes can go through the roof. And so I think the legislature wanted to avoid having their hands tied in, term, in terms of how much money they could allocate. So they did set a limit on what can go into the trust fund. But what they did this year, unfortunately, for true affordable housing advocates is they took about $100 million off the top and allocated it to, they call it the Hometown Heroes Program. So first responders and law enforcement. So th that $100 million will go towards housing for individuals who fall into those occupation categories. Great. So wow. there'll be less money available for general affordable housing programs. And the ones that the SILs are most familiar with and benefit from the most are the SHIP programs, the mm -hmm. State Housing Incentive Partnership, where there's local monies available to do home modifications yep. and rental assistance. Wow. So that's where we are. So it was a good year for housing yeah. in that there was enough to, to maximize how much funding could go into the into that trust fund, but $100 million was set aside for specific occupations to make sure they had affordable places to live. That's great. I mean, like, yeah, I think a lot of times um, many people 
think that affordable housing, you know, it does impact, you know, people that are homeless or threatened with homelessness. And then, you know, the idea oftentimes that people have is that people aren't working who have affordable housing needs and they just need to get a job so they can pay their rent or their mortgage. But um, in reality, there are many people working two jobs or more and just barely able to provide uh, for a roof over their head for their family. Like there's a there's working poor, the working class, uh, teachers, you know, first responders that are working and making these majorly contributing professions towards our community that are struggling to afford for a place to live. So I'm really happy to hear that, you know, emergency responders and, and whatnot are, are put into here and designated as a, as a profession that's receiving some funds for affordable housing. Because, you know, even with what they are getting paid, it can be a real struggle that they're paying 30, 40 percent of their income towards just having a roof over their head. Right. And a lot of times it's more than that. But another yeah. thing that happened that is significant in the budget is that, well, at first, the state employees got a, a 5.4% increase, pay increase. And the they raised the minimum wage for state employees to $15 an hour. And believe it or not, there were a lot of state employees who made $25,000, $26,000 a year. So a $15 an hour minimum wage will raise the the minimum amount that a state employee will make to over $30,000. That's pretty huge. And when you talk about families that are struggling with working two jobs, a lot of times those jobs are $10 an hour jobs, which Mm -hmm. is about $20,000 a year, which is not enough to to make ends meet. So the other place where the $15 an hour minimum wage took effect was in the Medicaid program. So any frontline workers who work in nursing homes or in programs funded by Medicaid, will have to earn at least $15 an hour. That's another big issue because that's where a lot of your certified nursing assistants mm-hmm. and personal care workers were on the front lines, barely making ends meet. So that, that's, that was a big initiative for Senator Simpson. And I think Representative Sprouls, the Speaker of the House came along with him on that one. But that's a, that's a big, I call it a, a tide lifter. You know, when everyone is making at least $15 an hour in those those social services spaces, they all have more money to spend. Even the most conservative person would have to agree that if people have more money to spend and the way the way Florida earns its money in general revenue is sales tax, they're going to buy more. And when they buy more, they generate sales tax, which generates general revenue. So it really is a positive thing for the economy in general. It's, it'll hurt small businesses who can't afford to pay their folks $15 an hour. While they're not subject to the mandate, it's going to be harder for them to find employees that are going to be willing to work for less than $15 an hour. But the reality is that those state-funded programs will now, they have raised, they've caused the tide to raise and hopefully, you know, other boats, all the boats will come up except for those the small mom and pop businesses where it, that could really be a struggle. It's one thing to pay someone $25,000 a year and, you know, in a small business. But if you have to bump that up to $31,000 a year, that's not a small impact. So I, I think you're going to see some economic ripples from that minimum wage decision. Essentially, it accelerates the path that Florida was already on when they passed. we passed a constitutional amendment to raise the minimum wage incrementally over time. This gets us there faster. But I do think it's huge because the Medicaid program notoriously underpaid frontline workers. Mm -hmm. And now 
you know, Medicaid is, is they put the money there so that the Medicaid health plans can afford to pay, or not, well, I guess they could afford it, but now they have to pay people $15 an hour. Well, you know, and, and this is important is it is complicated. And at the same time, when we talk about the need for, say, personal care assistants or home care workers that are child care workers, child care workers, like the, the value that they bring is way more than even $15 an hour. And I'd argue it is probably up there to where it's like clinical care, like medical doctors. They likely are, are, are giving the kind of care that is more impactful in terms of health outcomes, you know, uh, and keeping people independent and then clinical care. Where you know that typically will get paid more money, you know, to do those kind of services. So uh, the, again, the value in the pandemic, I think, is really shined a light in this area where the value of of certain jobs, as you were mentioning there, or even stocking shelves and selling gas and doing all these other things that, as everyone else was locked down, people were still being called to work. Were some of the lowest wage earners that are out there. So I think that's a really good reset on what do we really value. And are we willing to pay what is the value um, that we get out of that and bringing that up? So I, I do like that. I, and, and I also hear at the same time the unintended consequences of it could be with the small mom and pops, but also the nonprofits like centers, you know, and other that are in the human service industry as well will feel this too. Yes, it does make it difficult, but I think we all collectively as a society really do need to figure out how to get people paid the value of the service that they bring in a society that doesn't necessarily pay for those services, especially in the labor market that we have right now, where you know it is very tough to find you know, work, good workers to come and fill uh, some of the jobs just because of the, the nature and climate that we have in this area. So it's a very interesting times for the labor it force. It is, it is. And I, I do think that um, I'll be really curious to see what the impact of this will be. But when I think about the Medicaid program, I mean, it's the biggest program in the state state budget. And every year we spend more and more, and we're talking billions more and more every year. But if the cost drivers are acute care and hospitalization and some of those high, high dollar mm -hmm. items, I know, if, you know in, the, in the disability world, if you have a person who relies on personal care assistance every day to get out of bed and, um, and go to work or even just to, to survive, yeah. if that personal care assistant doesn't show up, or isn't doing good care, you're going to wind up with a hospitalization because of yep. um, bed sores, or someone's going to have a fall. You know, if if someone's not coming to the house to help a senior who is unsteady on their feet and they slip and fall and break a hip. I mean, there's so many um, so many avoidable costs in the Medicaid program that could be addressed by having a stronger front line. Those primary care workers that are not clinical, like you said, they are. They are unlicensed, but mostly certified, but they're providing that the most yeah. important care and to not have enough of them or to not have a supported frontline workforce that can afford to pay childcare so they can go to work every day yeah. will, I think, results in bigger end costs through avoidable accidents and illnesses. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so like how much money are we saying, uh, saving? Again, the return on investment, right? By, by paying someone... $15 an hour to, to do home care eight hours a day versus, okay, now they got to go an institutionalized care facility or whatever that might be. It's going to be so much more than paying that person that many hours to go over there to provide that care. So that, you know, it's, it's a prevention thing and, and it's money that we're saving 
So, so sometimes I can understand how that is less tangible for people to, to get their head around. But for those of us that understand that, and again, this goes back to that upstreaming, right? Uh, approach of, of really trying to solve problems before they arise. And it's just so important. And, and so, you know, I also think about the uh, informal caregivers. And, you know, you've done an amazing job networking with the Department of Elder Affairs. And, you know, I forget the exact number, but I believe it's around 30 plus billion dollars a year is estimated in informal caregiving, which means like a, a family member providing care for their, their older aging parent because they can't afford or, or don't have access to a home care worker to come by. So you have, you know, say uh, a mother of, of a few kids who's working and taking care of an aging parent and, and trying to keep them at home. And uh, to be able to do that, and then again, not relying on the state or, or taxpayer money to be able to do this, they're saving the state so much money. So it's just, it's just all part of, I guess, you know, the, the home care issues and the home care challenges that, you know, our state, our country really needs to figure out because like this one's a huge issue area, especially in the terms of independent living. You, you're leading me to my quote. I'm going to go ahead and volunteer <laughs> instead of waiting to be asked for it. But this Late is a quote from, from Plato. And it reminded, reminded me so much of that upstream conversation we had about we, we tend to focus our efforts on, the, on whoever is screaming the loudest and whatever is the most dramatic. And when it comes to the legislature, that's where the money gets poured into. We, you know, we want to fund the hospitals. We want to fund the, the most expensive pieces of the system instead of going back and looking at, well, why is this so expensive and why, why does costs keep growing? And there, or Plato said, a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers. And that really resonated with me because so often we say, well, you know, we need more money because we, we, we have this many more people in the program. And so we make the decision on where the need is instead of stopping and saying, well, why do, why do we keep increasing enrollment? Why do so many people need Medicaid? Why do so many people need food stamps? What if we figured out, well, maybe if we paid them more, or maybe if we made housing more affordable, maybe if we made childcare of a higher quality and more accessible to working parents, then we wouldn't have the need for all these other deep end programs. But so often the people who make money off of those programs are not poor. Those are the large corporations that are delivering the services and you know, Walmarts of the world love food stamps because that's where most of their revenue comes from. So instead of you know, hearing the loudest voices and throwing money at that end of the, of the stream, we yeah. need to go upstream and find out, well, what would it take for families to be more independent, for people with disabilities? do not need such deep end services. So again, a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers. But knowledge is harder to acquire because it requires study and reflection and critical analysis. And numbers are just numbers. I mean, the numbers don't lie, which is great, but they don't tell the whole story. You know, I, I agree. For me, there's a sequence, right? It goes data, information, knowledge, and then ultimately wisdom, I think. So like the data is the numbers, you know, so you, you do have some numbers which can inform, becomes information. So it can start informing us. Then when we apply that, it, it becomes like knowledge. Like now we, we, we got information, we're taking that information and we're applying it. And for me, the wisdom is what comes out of the application of that knowledge. And, and then going back to the data and, and you got maybe new numbers that have come from the application and the, the wisdom that has come out of it and more information, more knowledge, more wisdom. So right. I, I love your quote. I love that you're 
you're, you're quoting some of the ancient wisdom that is uh, eternal, I'm finding uh, nowadays. I love Plato. Well, but because it's eternal, it means we still haven't figured it out. No, yeah, <laughs> and exactly. the same thing for thousands of years. It's so not new. <laughs> I know, what we're going through, pandemics and everything, it's so not new. And and uh, what's so not new likely is the political climate in which this budget has uh, manifested and come to us in. And uh, maybe you could talk us through any kind of, you know, schoolhouse rocks, uh, lessons learned. Uh, you know, again, the, the it's not signed, sealed, and delivered necessarily uh, in terms of the budget. We still, uh, and it's not over till it's over, right? Um, but we're very close and it has come to us during a really interesting uh, moment in, in politics, um, you know, election cycles and everything else like that. And you know, the virality of, uh, we were talk, calling them like red meat issues and everything else like that. So coming out of a, a session in that context, what are, what are some of the things that either you've learned or that have been uh, reinforced to what you've already known? It was a really hard session to watch. It was very polarized. There were some really polarizing issues that um, were approved on a party line basis towards the end. The legislators were calling them culture war issues where there were clearly two completely different viewpoints. So um, all of the, the red meat issues did pass and we'll go to the governor. Most of them came from him. They were things that he wanted to promote freedom, to restrict what can be said in the classroom, to, um, and I don't wanna go into details on this podcast. I'll just say that they were very polarizing issues that were very one-sided politically. It was most, it was, you know, the Republic, these were issues that, the Republicans wanted, there were several Republicans who dissented, who did not think that, who felt that the issues went too far. But Tony, what you find that happens because you've got policy issues and budget issues, at the end of the day, legislators wanna get reelected and the things that get to help them get reelected are bringing home funding to, to their constituents for new roads, for projects, for community centers, for things that matter to, for the APD waiver, for centers for independent living. So. The legislature can, the, in the majority, can hold hostage policy issues because if you, they can say, if you vote against this issue, I'm not going to fund your issue. So legislators are, are left in that really untenable predicament where they have to decide what's more important. It, you know, if, if they know the policy issue is going to pass anyway, they kind of have to just let it go. If letting it go means that they can be more confident that their issue would be funded. Likewise, if they if the budget passes, but you've alienated the governor, the governor can take out his red pen and veto all the things that were important to you. And we saw that a lot when Governor Scott was uh, was governor. He if someone got on the wrong side of, of him during a legislative session. He had no trouble just lining out big appropriations items. Um, he won. He was a small government advocate, so he liked spending less money in anyway, regardless of the impact. So um, so it's. So yes, it was a polarizing session. There were a lot of cultural issues that wound up um, becoming front and center towards the end of the session. Um, at first, the Senate did not pick up those issues. They didn't. There was there was one issue that they didn't even never even went through a Senate committee. But again, I I have to believe that what happened was that the House said, if you don't do this, we are not going to fund your issues that are your priorities. And for the Senate president, there was funding for the Moffitt Cancer Center down in Pasco County. There was the, the hearing aid issue that he really wanted funded. There was quite a few issues. He wanted he wanted the $15 minimum wage. That was not something that came from the House. So 
in order to get those things, he had a compromise with the house. And my guess is he, you know, there was probably some, okay, we'll pick up that bill. We'll vote on that bill, even though it wasn't a priority for them. So there was the 15 week abortion bill. There was the bill limiting what classroom teachers can talk, can, mm-hmm. can say when it comes to questions of um, sexuality and gender identity for kindergarten through third graders. And there was also the bill that limits what can be said in the classroom with regard to ra- our racial history. And the bills were very vague. So it's really unclear how they're going to manifest themselves, but they do give parents a cause of action if they feel that a teacher has violated the restrictions on what can be said in the classroom. So it's it's a little bit scary going forward about you know how all this will play out. But my guess is that those things move forward because they were they were linked to big appropriations issues that were also very important to those same members. You know, you bring up, brought all that up by saying the freedom to restrict. What an oxymoron, but it's how true <laughs> it is, right? You know, so I want the freedom to restrict. I guess it's interesting that it also happened during a time where, like you said, it's the, the biggest budget. So there's uh, plenty of money there uh, to get the things that you want. And so I could see that how that would be held against, you know, people of the same party that are really trying to push policies that they might not necessarily agree with. And so you got to go along to drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, to check the box and everything else like that. But also like on the other side, it seems as though um, perhaps there were democratic initiatives and, and other social causes like ours that still you know made it through there. Does it make it harder for issues like ours to, to be in a budget during this kind of a climate? Or like is the target taken off of us in some ways, you know, outside of the clerical error? I think so, yes. I, I definitely takes think crosshairs off of us. Yeah. Yes. You you wind up sort of softening the hard edges of those difficult policy issues. You know, the my state senator here in Tallahassee, Loran Osley, she had a big issue for uh, expanding broadband to rural areas. That was her thing. She disagreed with all of the policy bills and voted against them, but she wasn't as vocal as she might have been because she didn't want them to kill her broadband issue. So it's just, it's a messy process. It always has been. You know, it's it's one of those things where you really don't want to know how the sausage gets made <laughs> because it's not pretty. Yeah. And it's body parts that you'd rather just not um, even realize that you have to eat. <laughs> so. It's not pretty. Like when you were talking about either vote for my bill or I'm going to withhold funding for like your cancer Moffitt Center. And who's going to suffer? It's going to be the people that have that are needing those services because they're living with cancer. I don't know. It sounds mafia-like to me, you know, in some ways, right? You know, you're strong-arming people uh, to you do are. what you want at the at the um, the the price and cost of the, the people, the good people right. that are there. And yeah, so that is tough to really be, you know, kind of. Uh, it's you know, not witness. new. Yeah, it's this so not, not new, it, right? Yeah, this is not new. This has been, you know, yeah. happening since we we you know we had a democracy. It's just the nature of the work. I mean, if you, I think if you go back to our founding fathers and some of the negotiations they had to make, even around slavery, you know, around mm-hmm. all of those things, there was yeah. there were a lot of compromises that were made because, um, you know, for money, for, for, for money reasons, or yeah. because it, there was you know, the, the back and forth, the quid pro quo and the, um, the bartering. It's, um, yeah. it's happened since, like I said, since the inception of our democracy and it probably always will. Just the, the closer you get to it, the, the more evident it is. And this time every year, I, I feel cynical and I feel defeated, but then I get rejuvenated because I don't want to step away from the process because then, then what's, the, you know, then you're not 
having an impact, but it just it can feel very discouraging when you see how things happen. And it's so not new with the, the hundreds of years with our democracy, but I'd say even the original democracy where it originated and founded, you quoted Plato, right? The Greeks who really are known for the ones to create de democracy, you know, the first flourishing democracies. And, uh, you know, where there they struggled too with, with things. I mean, ultimately, uh, Socrates was executed because he kept questioning, you know, the, the sense that politicians were, you know, the sensibilities that they had in the decision making uh, that they were doing regarding those kind of things. So it is so not new for thousands of years in, in right. many ways. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it makes for good fodder for philosophy. It makes for good application. Um, it's a mixed bag, like you said, um, and I can understand how you feel beat up and defeated towards the end of a session, but I also understand that the, um, you know, maybe it's not a coincidence that these sessions end in spring, spring, you know, the hope of spring's eternal for better days and, and to keep working towards that. And from the lessons that we learned from this past side, I guess will be the cycle that we will ride for from now until wherever it takes us. I love that analogy. And it's so true. And even if you have a cold, a cold snap in the spring, you can, you know, you can still come, come through it yeah. and you can uh, weather the, weather the frost, but it's, um, it definitely was a frosty end this year. <laughs> Literally. And, you know, we're Florida, right? So, you know, it could be cold one day and then, you know, it warms up the next day. So the, the, you know, and we are the sunshine state. So, so as much of a knock as that we can get, the sun will always come back up again and there's a new round to go with. And we're just going to keep moving with this as far as we can take it. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we have been moving forward and that's, that's the positive yeah. thing. Every session has been successful. You know, we, we were building on our prior successes. So I, I feel really optimistic. I'm really proud of each of the centers. And I hope that now that COVID is hopefully behind us, they can spend more time in their districts, getting to know their legislators. Mm. Will there be election in November? So there'll be new, new people, new faces in the House and the Senate. But it's so important for the centers to get out there and meet their elected officials, let them know, let them see the good work that they do so that um, our name recognition and our credibility is bolstered year over year. Yeah, uh, amen to that. All right, Jane, anything else before we sign off? No, just thank you, Tony, for making this opportunity and for helping us educate folks out there. And even though we kind of ended on a little bit of a, a downer note, it's like you said, it's spring and it's time for new beginnings. We, yeah. We're going to build on the lessons that we learned this year. And the stills are going to go forward with more money this year than they had last year. So yeah. they'll serve more people and do more good work. Yeah, it's hard, but it's reality, right? We're not going to sugarcoat things and be able to say what it is. And it's a mixed bag. It's like life. You got some things that are looking very positive and some things that aren't. And uh, it's part of the cycle, a cycle, right. a cycle that we're going to continue to go on. And if it was easy, we wouldn't be interested in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is where we grow. This is where we learn. It's outside of the comfort zone. And Amen. Uh, that growth will always take us onward and upward. Take care, Jane. All right. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org 
at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.